Jay, you're not wearing sunglasses. I am not, and I know that's the first, but that's because I am in costume. I'm not here as Jay. We know Jay wears sunglasses, but, you know. Uh, you're Rule 63 Hope Summers, right? That is a daring choice, continuity-wise. Oh, come on, man. It's, she's not that complicated. Okay, okay, look. She's, she's just, she's complication-adjacent. And that's sort of bound to happen when you're the first mutant born post-decimation. It's not her fault. She was stowing away with X-Force as a comatose digital hitchhiker. Okay, that's weird, but it's actually not that complicated. I mean, you pretty much just summed it up. Her body was comatose, but her powers still worked, so she could borrow Mimi's powers and use them to do stuff. She not a big deal. She was a Phoenix host. <laughs> Briefly. <laughs> Wasn't Avengers vs. X-Men technically her fault? Or at least the Phoenix Five. Okay. Avengers vs. X-Men was probably Editorial's fault. <laughs> and the Phoenix Five squarely on Tony Stark. I mean, I believe it, but how so? Well, he broke the Phoenix Force. You can do that? Well, if you've got a big enough gun. <laughs> So, how did Hope end up with the Phoenix? Oh, well, after Cyclops went Dark Phoenix, um, she and Scarlet Witch picked it up. The Scarlet Witch, Wanda Maximoff. That's an unlikely pairing. Uh, there was some Iron Fist nonsense involved, too. Okay. Uh, so, how long was Hope Phoenix? Like, five minutes. I mean, basically just long enough to undo Decimation, that was it. And the Phoenix pretty much disappeared after that, right? I mean, obviously it came back recently, but it's been laying pretty low. It's popped up a few times. Cyclops had it um, pre-Secret Wars and just into Secret Wars until Doom killed him. Uh, again? How many times has he been a Phoenix host anyway? Twice or three times if you count the Teen Titans crossover. <laughs> and he's actually, he's done pretty well. It's two out of three times he didn't go Dark Phoenix, which is a pretty good track record as those things go. And Rachel Summers or Rachel Gray, she's historically handled it pretty well too, right? Yeah, she's had some rough moments, but pretty much she's, she's done, done nicely. I'm trying to think of anyone who's hosted the Phoenix all that often. Quentin Choir. Uh, both whole and fragmentary. How'd that work out? You know, aside from the time that he um, disinterred and resurrected Sophie Cuckoo, surprisingly well. What else has he done with the Phoenix anyway? I mean, he grew some sweet pink sideburns. <laughs> Valid use of a cosmic force. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, and, and he and the Phoenix teamed up with Thor in space. That was, that was great. That was oh, deeply rad. God, it was. How did that go again? Well, uh, Jane Foster had a pretty intense time in the White Hot Room. Oh, that'll do it. Oh, and Quentin became a Shi'ar god. What? I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 188 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to all of the awesome Emerald City Comic Con X-Fans who decided to sit in a room with us and some awesome people in front of a bunch of microphones. Thank you guys so much for coming. And to all of our guests... Um, yeah, so this is, this is, what, this is our third year doing this live at Emerald City? I do believe. Dang! Okay, right. yeah. Okay, so before we dive into talking to our awesome guests, so, Jay, this cosplay thing. Okay, so, um, there, there's a reason that I'm, I'm dressed in this outfit, and the reason for that is that, so my mom is here, she's in the front row, and she's dressed as Cable. 
Robin, was you? Uh, yeah. using all of those pouches too. Actually, <laughs> um, yeah, this is actually her first her first comics convention, and I'm I'm so proud of her. <laughs> you see, and she's a middle school teacher too, so she's she's basically been pre preparing for this costume for her entire career. <laughs> so, <laughs> but also with us today, we have I am really excited about this show because this show um, marks a couple firsts for us. And one of them is, is you've, if you've seen our live shows and our live panels, we get a lot of, of you know, mixed groups of people, we get a lot of writers, we have never had an entire panel of artists before. And we also have our first colorist, which, you know, if you listen, you hear us talking about this constantly, but we have yet to actually get a colorist on the show, and we finally do, and it's one of my favorites. So, yeah, let's introduce our folks. Jay, who do we have? All right, so on the far end is Ramon Villalobos, who drew E for Extinction during Secret Wars. And if you are on the internet, which I assume you all are at this point, um, you may have seen his fantastic X-Men redesigns over the years. So very cool. So yeah, welcome, Ramon. Thank you. And then we have an artist who, uh, whose work I've been looking at for most of my life, that being the person who did tons and tons of wonderful New Mutants with Louis Simonson back in the 80s, that being the one and only Brett Blevins. And finally, um, I think one of the people who is, one of the modern creators who has worked on among the most X titles. Um, if you have read an X book in the last decade and change, there's a very good chance that she's colored it. Um, says Rochelle Rosenberg. All right, so introductions out of the way. Let's talk about X-Men and art because there's art in those X books. Yes. <laughs> so with the, with the added and eternal qualifier that Actually, for you guys here who are listening too, we're basically in audio format, and when we post this, there will be a links page where you can actually look at pictures of the things that we're talking about if you want that frame of reference. And you should anyway, because they'll make really good stuff. <laughs> um, but so before we get too much more specific, one of the things we like to uh, start panels off with is asking people who've worked on X-Men who, uh, whether they have a definitive X-Men era or X-Men team or X-Men something that to them just says X-Men. Yeah. So if anybody wants to start, or we'll call names at random. <laughs> All right, um, Rochelle, you're closest. Do you want to start yourself? Um, so what was the question? Basically, <laughs> if, 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 just, just, if you had to crystallize sort of your sense of the X-Men as one era, one team, ex existing or just you know, one you've put together in your head, where would you go to? Yeah, or even just like one quality, just one X thing. Yeah. Question keeps getting broader. Yeah, it's like you try to clarify and it just makes it bigger and more confusing. It's yeah. kind of like X-Men. What did the X-Men mean? What did the X-Men mean to you? <laughs> the X-Men. Um uh, like JC said earlier, I've worked on several X-Men books, and one thing is like they I feel like Marvel or the editors always split them off into different teams. And for me, I never I just don't understand. They're the, the X-Men. They're all supposed to be like unified, working together. And so to me, it's like, you know, all of them put together. Um, 
I just worked on Phoenix Resurrection and for the most part, like there was one scene where they had, I mean, as many X-Men that were alive in one room. And that to me was awesome. They did split off into different groups, but they were all one team. Yeah, they even had Guido Caracella in that room with an amazing beard, as I recall. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad he's back from hell. As a minister, I, I'm really glad they split him up into teams, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. And that's probably why they do that. Yeah, done. Well, I'm old enough that my first impression of the X-Men was still drawn by Jack Kirby. Yes. A little kid. Although I remember the very first issue I ever had was the one with the Frankenstein monster on the cover. Oh, oh right. Don Heck, I think. Yeah. But um, at the, in those days, I preferred Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. I sort of the teams were a little bit more than I could handle at that young age. But the ones I remember the most are the era that I worked on when I was in New York and worked hanging out with all the people that were doing them. So, you know, the classic '80s lineup, I suppose. I think that's probably my go-to as well. The 80s were just such a golden age. I mean, there have been lots of golden ages of X-Men, but that's what I what I really started with, that, just this giant long box I got from my dad one year, and it was the 80s, and it was amazing. Well, that's where they started layering the personalities and really you know, doing more modern sort of exposition of their inner workings. Because exactly. before that, it was still a lot of pulpy kind of dialogue. Mm -hmm. But Chris elevated it to more thoughtful. As a... Uh, as a kid who didn't grow up reading comics, uh, I think the the definitive one is probably like from like for most of my life. Well, not anymore, but for before I worked in comics, uh, it was just the '90s X-Men cartoon. Right? Yeah, because that was like I didn't really care for the Batman cartoon because it was so boring looking. Like I mean, the art is good, but the colors were like just gray and desaturated. And the X-Men one, when you're five, it's like colorful and like. They had stuff at Pizza Hut for it. <laughs> that was very aspirational to have the Pizza Hut promotion. Yeah. And, uh, like a hollow foil box cover. So that was like the coolest thing was like the Jim Lee. I didn't know Jim Lee at the time, you know, but the, that era. Um, until I started like reading a lot of comics in like high school when I would go to the library. And then uh, when I got really into comics, it was the Morrison, Frank Whiteley, you know, that new X-Men era of X-Men, uh, like for sure, that to me is like the only comics of like X-Men that I've like seriously read, I think it's the only one that I own. So I, I, that's why when they asked me to be on this panel, I was like, ah, I don't know, I'm kind of a fraud X-Men fan. But you're like, no, but you worked on the X-Men. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and, well, and specifically you worked on a run that was directly building on that look and era. Yeah, which was incredible. Like, I answered the email when they asked me if I wanted to do it. Like, do you want to do a follow-up to the Grant Morrison era X-Men? I was like, fuck. I was like, I was like yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Like, yeah, we're, yeah. we're M-rated. We, we swear sometimes. Okay. Well, I said, fuck yeah. And then, <laughs> uh, I, like, I sent the email, and then I was like, wait a minute. I need to, like, know what the schedule is and who's writing it and if I have time or availability. But yeah, yeah of course I'm going to do that. <laughs> Well, and one of the interesting things about that, um, and something that I was hoping we could talk about in general, is X-Men's been going for, as it turns out, a very long time. Really? There's, there's a lot of it out there. Uh, and so, inevitably, um, when you're following up on, on a book, I mean, you sort of have to respond to what's been done before. And Ramon, it seemed like you took Frank Quitely's style, just yeah. that very distinct Frank Quitely style, and almost made it like more Frank Quitely for the sequel <laughs> uh, in the form of e is, is for Extinction. What was that like, like deciding how to you know, be the sequel artistically? Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty it was pretty awesome to like. I think I was like the third person on the list. 
I think they went for like Chris Burns, like I don't have time, but I'll write it. And like, oh, that's cool. And then they're like, Ian Bertram's like, I don't have time, but on the covers, like Ramon, what are you doing? I was like, of course I'll do that. Uh, I have nothing better to do. So, so uh, yeah, uh, I I approached it as if like I'm going to like the, the I don't know if you, anybody hasn't read it, but the premise is uh, it was part of a Secret Wars thing, but it was very detached from that. So it was just if in the first issue of New X-Men that Morrison wrote, uh, Professor Xavier holds a gun to his head and he almost like kills himself to prevent his sister from taking over his body or whatever. And uh, in ours, he just kills himself. He like, the, my first pages are just Professor Xavier committing suicide. And then it's like, what happens like 20 years, 30 years later? And so it was like that stuff growing up and it was amazing because I got to like use those designs and like the costumes that they created for that and just like if if the kids that grew up in that environment where there was no like s central guiding figure like Xavier like they would just be kind of like it's just fashion and it's just like cool things that they grew up around but they don't have like the same sort of uh, respect or like inherent sense of like this is the right moral thing to do it's just like the cool thing to do so, you know, I, I made like the, the uniforms like more just like, you know, punk or like club or hip hop versions of those costumes, but just still using the same like jackets and pants and boots or whatever. So that was, that was really neat. And uh, I got to do a variant cover for it with uh, uh, Beak and Angel, uh, like having like smashed Wolverine's face off with his uh, adamantium bat. And on a beak shirt, I wrote "Kill Your Idols" because that was like the approach. It was like, yeah, I know that stuff exists, but this is like a new thing, and we don't have to be beholden to it, and we can like do whatever. We're not like, you know, being respectful of it because that's not the intention of it. You know, if it was respectful, they would have got those guys to do it, or like, you know, they would have. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, I think part of that, like, part of the attitude of it was like, you know, evolve or die. You know. Uh, so yeah, that was. I think that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, totally. Parts of that answered it. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned evolve or die, and one of one of the the things we we've, we've seen over the years. I I, I want to um, ask this question is, is for Rochelle. Um, the tech coloring comics is so heavily informed by technology. I think almost more, more than any other aspect of the process, it has it has it has evolved. <laughs> so dramatically from where the characters whom you're coloring now started, where some of their designs now started. How do you build on that and, and keep that you know, consistent and, and keep it working over time? Um, as far as like coloring, the technical aspect of it, you, know, you have to make sure that, I mean, everything looks great on a computer because the screen illuminates all the colors, but that transforming into print can be totally different. A lot of times the colors get darker and duller, and so you have to take that into consideration when coloring pages. Um, and then there's the whole RGB into CMYK aspect of it. Um, a lot of times when I'm coloring books, there's X-Men or characters in it that haven't shown up since digital coloring has been invented. So a lot of the reference I get is from stuff from way long time ago. And I have to, a lot of times I have to figure out like, okay, what color was this actually supposed to be? <laughs> because the color it looks like in the print is, let's say blue, but it's really supposed to be black. 
you know, so I have to kind of figure out in my head, is this really supposed to be blue or is this black now? So. Who is the most fun to color? You've got such a wide range of costumes and palettes. Is there anyone who you sort of look to and go like, okay, yeah, that's, that's sort of the breath of fresh air moment of this issue, is this character? Um, I would say probably Colossus. Legit. Yeah, he's got, I mean, he's got clothes, he's got metal. I mean, he's... These days he has a sweet beard, or at least it yeah. briefly. Yeah. I miss that beard. It's <laughs> great. Um, and uh, continuing on the topic of kind of following up what's come before, be it, you know, colors that have been done in, under different technology or a run done by different creators. Um, Brett, you followed up a, a number of iconic creators, I think probably most famously Bill Sienkiewicz on New Mutants with a pretty radically different style. What was that like, you know, going from one iconic run to what became your iconic run? Well, um, I was actually in the studio with Bill when he started doing that, so I was watching him do that. But um, now it's iconic and everybody loves it, and I loved it at the time, but a lot of the fans didn't like it at the time, so they were, they were concerned about that. And then there was another uh, idea to separate the uh, tone of the stories, and they wanted to push the New Mutants way younger, which everybody who's seen that stuff knows they suddenly lose about 10 years off their life. Yeah. And um, so that was given to me. I think I had some, not model sheets, but some examples of uh, drawings of kids by J.R. Uh, Jr., and they were, you know, in his style, so they had very big heads and very narrow bodies. And I took that a little too literally, so they look kind of puppety to me now when I look back at what I did. Although a few issues earlier, I'd drawn them as 18-year-olds. But, um, so I, got, I, I eventually adjusted to that. But the other thing was the writer change. Louise came on, Louise Simonson came on. And they picked her especially because of her feeling for kids and, and natural dialogue. Right, so, she'd done Power Pack for a while at that yeah, point. Yeah, that, at that point. And she was also a dear friend of mine by that point. So, we got some criticism for it. I remember one of the lines we used to get from uh, some of the more unpleasant letter writers was that I'm not buying this book to read the, about the Archies. <laughs> so, okay. But, uh, but eventually everybody got used to it, it seemed like, and it was fine. But uh, I didn't really think too much about the stuff that came before because that can be very distracting, you know? It's like I'm trying to do this more, uh, almost like a, an animated looking treatment. Yeah. And to bring in something like the way Bill handled that bear would be so jarring. You know what I mean? So I was trying to find a middle ground there and just have it all. I feel out. like your, your demon bear moment is the point where the comic could not conceivably have been drawn anyone by, by anyone other than you really hit with Inferno. Oh, yeah. Well, that's my favorite sequence. <laughs> Yeah, for those who haven't read, Inferno involves New York getting uh, taken over by a, a demon dimension and like all of the various inanimate objects turn into demons and stuff. And so it was just so cool seeing um, you and I believe um, Mark Silvestri and uh, Walter Simonson Walt, yeah. all with your own very different takes on that and these stories that kept crisscrossing over. Well, and, and the occasional tie-ins, um, the, cla the, the classic and most memorable of which being John Romita Jr. drawing Daredevil losing a fight with a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Probably not his lowest moment. Definitely not. Are you kidding? It's, the, if there's one lesson from Daredevil, it's that it can always get worse. But specifically that it can always get more embarrassing. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the issue of Daredevil. It's just the actor's nightmare. He's just on a stage. He was supposed to memorize the script. He's I think lawyer, that's actually right? happened. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I am, I am, I am like 90% roughly sure. I mean, I, I am the scent. He wrote it for ages and tended to go in those directions, so... I love her work so much. Um, so we're talking about, about X-Men visuals, and we touched on this to a degree, I guess, with, with our, our first um, discussion point, but 
so you look at an X-Men character, and if you if you file off the, the X logos, and in the 90s the pouches, I guess, um, <laughs> then there's nothing like specific that makes them say, I am definitely an X-Men character. But at the same time, I feel like, even if you were not immersed in X-Men like, like we are, um, you could look at one and be like, yeah, okay, that's probably a mutant character, probably like works you know, on the side of Xavier, roughly, or the side of Magneto, roughly. There's like this ineffable quality that just says X-Men, and, and I've been trying to pin down what that is, but as, as artists, do you have a perspective on just like, what makes the X-Men look like the X-Men? Yeah, what, what do they have to have visually to be the X-Men? Yeah, and for, I'm certainly interested in all of your perspectives on that. Yeah. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Value, valid perspective. As time went on, I think it was harder to tell, but at the era that I'm most familiar with, which was when I was doing it back in the 80s, they seemed to be more, um, they had a lot more variety between them. Because a lot of the teams, like the Fantastic Four, resembled each other. And the Avengers were a team book composed of other individual characters who everyone already knew. But the X-Men seemed to constantly be wearing what was fashionable and sort of playing with their hair. Mm -hmm. They looked a little more... Well, in a sense, younger, I guess, closer to teenage interests. Uh, that's what that's what I can remember about it, anyway. Mm -hmm. so I yeah. think that's an interesting. I had thought about that. And yeah, Ramon, that certainly ties into exactly what you were just describing with E is for Extinction, with that being core to you know the, the premise of the book, almost just that like fashionable nowness to it. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite things when I did go back and read like the '90s books was that they were always like playing basketball and like wearing cool clothes that like would have been cool in the '90s. Yes. So like, yeah, that's like, I think that's true. It's like, it, it, the X-Men are always best when they show like what, like young people are like doing now, you know? Their individualism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm also thinking of uh, Boom Boom in Your New Mutants Run, Brett, who was always just like that era incarnate. Well, that era incarnate, but a very specific angle on that era. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's all she cared about was her hair and her glasses. And how she was going to tie her bandana and all that kind of thing. <laughs> so much love for Tabitha. Yeah, I did too. I, if anybody has read that run, that we were building up to something before everything changed where a lot of her behavior was going to be revealed by the fact that she was so insecure about that she couldn't read. And, uh, the other characters were going to have to teach her to read, and I was thinking how much fun that was going to be to draw, but we didn't get a chance to do it. Because I can imagine Rain being very, very coaxing and patient with her, and... Uh, you know, some of the other characters maybe not having the patience for that. <laughs> I'm also Warlock trying to help her and really messing everything up. <laughs> that would have been a lot of fun. Also, sort of imagine the, the difference between, say, Rain and Eliana's idea of what would make compelling beginner reading. <laughs> oh, jeez, that would go terribly. That would be it would amazing. Be it would be, it would be oh, man, the new mutants that might have been. That sounds amazing. Yes. Yeah. Oh. But, uh, that yeah. happens a lot in comics where you have plans that don't come off. I'm sorry, too. Um, I, I mean, coloring them, most of the time I feel like it's always, like, yellow. It's a big part. Yeah. Like, I mean, even with characters like Beast, who doesn't really usually wear, like, the yellow and black. I mean, even on his shorts, he's got, like, gold or something. I don't, I, I do like it when they come out with their own individual mm. costumes but I will say for coloring it, it's so much easier when everything's just yellow and black. <laughs> I was gonna say, my, my answer to that is, is actually probably the color yellow as well, because it doesn't always show up, but it shows up on few enough superhero costumes that it fairly consistently flags mutant team or mm -hmm. X-related team, even when it's just tangentially attached. I guess that'll wasp. Yeah. Or, yeah, yellow jacket, but he's got like a billion identities. You know what? <laughs> I, I, 
Yeah. I'm, I'm really cool with just ignoring him entirely. <laughs> but, um, Except for the, um, the, I can't remember the name of the, the All Ages line version. Uh, who's, who's, Earth's Mightiest Heroes? Yes, the Earth's Mightiest Heroes ones who's, who's roommates with, with his aunt. <laughs> oh, um, actually, Marvel oh, yeah. Adventures is the one you're Marvel about. Adventures. Marvel Adventures okay, Hank is fairly delightful. Cartoon. I like him there, too. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, so there's, there's the yellow thing, certainly. But um, Rochelle, you were just talking about how, the, about a lot of them having their own looks very much. And that was something that always jumped out to me is in, um, you know, something like the Avengers, and I'm not a big Avengers person, so maybe I'm totally off base here, but you seem to have more of like the super heroic covers, lots of reds, lots of blues, stuff like that. With X-Men, I, th I feel like you see a lot more of those villainous colors, like the greens and the purples and stuff. Well, really quickly, you know, you know who isn't a big Avengers person? Hank Pym. <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, no, I thought, I remember hearing that it was originally yellow and black because that was the, the radiation warning sign colors, mm. that it was supposed to, that the costumes were supposed to evoke that. Yeah, I'm just thinking like, well, I guess it makes sense with somebody like Rogue, because Rogue was a villain. You get a lot of characters yeah. who are a little more uh, morally gray, if colored, not gray. Um, like, you know, Psylocke in her purple, say, she always had that darker side, especially when she went ninja, which, boy, that's complicated. <laughs> so, actually, here's a question for everyone. What are some of, yeah, any, any era, any design, what are some of your favorite X-Men costumes and why? Or just designs in general. Yeah, or both. Yeah, but, you know, but costumes especially, because the costumes follow such specific eras and looks, and they're, you know, each, 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 there are some where you can look at that and go, okay, yeah, that's between 92 and 96. I'm thinking Jean Grey's 90s costume that couldn't have come out of any other era. Although it's pretty much back at this point, just modified. Yeah, it's not beige anymore, which is a plus. Yeah. Boy, that's a hard one, oh. I can't. <coughs> the fashion in the 80s was so extreme compared to what had just come before. I mean, from about 79 to 84 is probably the worst, dullest, ugliest period in all kinds of industrialism. <laughs> <laughs> the clothes, the cars, the furniture, the household appliances, everything was not only terribly designed, but the worst color. <laughs> so when it exploded in the 80s, I think uh, that's the, what I remember is they were changing their costumes a lot. I mean, look what happened to Storm. Yeah. And the Mohawk, and it was that, you never knew what they were going to look like from issue to issue, really, so that, I remember that as being the most interesting to me. Well, I'm thinking, like, Rogue, she changed costumes. I mean, people, we always talk about Kitty Pryde changing costumes all the time, but Rogue did maybe even more for a while. The reason the we don't bring scale. that up is that hers were consistently good. Like, <laughs> Kitty Pryde, and, and also they had a lot of consistent design elements. They tended to have a tunic, they tended to have green fields crossed with asymmetrical other colors. They tended to be mostly green and, green and black based, for instance. And Kitty was all over the map and often dramatic enough about it, but also often, you know, far enough departures and ridiculous enough that it was an event when she got a new costume. I mean, my favorite was Storm from the 90s, all white, white hair. I mean, to me, like, she was the, the one X-Men that stood out to me when I was growing up. Yeah, so that costume is all white then. We have confirmation from a colorist because yeah. we've been confused I about this for years. Okay. <laughs> is it black highlights, white yes. black highlights? <laughs> it's official. Okay, there we go. Canon, um, done. Because we, someone asked us on the podcast and we went through a ton of black, or black uh, back issues to try to figure out whether it was black or white because we were like, this should be easy. Mm -hmm. It's not. I think we settled on we think white, but uh, so thank you for the confirmation. You're welcome. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Ramon, did you have a, a favorite oh, X-Men? I have no idea. I have no opinion about design, guys. Um, no, uh, like, it's, it's tough because I like 
my, my favorite version of any like kind of X-Men characters we take like elements of all of them and mix them up mm-hmm. which I like to do just for fun like I'll draw Wolverine with like his regular like 90s costume but with like the quietly jacket and with you know like dip, like mix and match parts of it I always think that's really cool like if the superheroes had a wardrobe they wouldn't just wear the same shirt and pant combination every day if they amass it over years so I like I like doing that for fun uh, it's not great to do it in a book so uh, I mean my personal favorite is the Frank Quietly ones because, I mean, it has like a very uh, graphic design that still has the elements that like read X-Men. Like you said, like that yellow, it's like very bright yellow X on it and black and, uh, you know, it's like just black leather and like, you know, bright neon yellow. Like, it's just cool. Like it's, it's timelessly cool. And I think that's so, so rad that you know, they like an official comic design that I think holds up now, and like you can read those comics and they feel modern. So, yeah. I think just like from a pure design standpoint, my personal favorite is that. So, quietly jackets or Cassidy jackets? <laughs> Quite, obviously, the quietly jacket. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> There's, the, the distinction is so subtle that like. Yeah, because the quietly ones are cool. Well, the, the quietly. <laughs> John Cassidy, if you're okay. listening, we think you're great. No, no, like yeah. the difference is like the quietly ones are very much like bomber jackets, yeah. which is like different than like what Cassidy did, which were just like slimmer and like they didn't have the same amount of volume. They didn't, they didn't have the inverted V at the bottom, which is what I think of as the main distinction. Yeah, like yeah, they yeah. The they, full waistband. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I mean the subtleties of the the quietly ones are pretty rad. Like I mean I studied them, I broke them down hard when I started that. Like just the way. Like Wolverine's is like all black, but he has like the yellow bits, but there's still the X in it. And like uh, sometimes I would notice when the colorist would mess that up on like a cover or something. Like, oh, like he clearly rendered that to be black, but they didn't care or notice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, there's uh, those are my favorite ones. Um, I I don't even like remember reading. I, I like the quiet uh, the Cassidy Cy- Cyclops costume though. That was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, the, to me, the, the quietly ones are like, in my head, the definitive ones of like those main X-Men guys, just cause that was like, you know, I lived in that for, I mean, you know what that's like, I'm both of you, like you live in that stuff when you're working on Those people oh, yeah. are like Burns in your in head. Your yeah, like those, are, like those are people in your like, in your house with you, you know? Like you said, you just sit, you know, we were talking outside, you said, you know, when you're at home, you're just sitting at home with your two cats and all those characters on the right. page that you have to deal with. So. And sometimes they're harder to deal with than the cats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Miles, I, I, just, I didn't know your answer to this question. Uh, favorite design? You know, I, I have so many. I do have a soft spot for the 90s Jim Lee redesigns, I think, because that was when I was starting. I mean, I was coming into comics reading those old 70s and 80s ones simultaneous to buying the early 90s stuff as it came out. And so, like, uh, wrote... <laughs> I don't know that there's been a bad rogue costume except for maybe that pink space one, and that's obviously very subjective, but uh, her 90s costume was wonderful, her 80s costumes were also wonderful. It's a lot of green, though. Yeah. It's a lot of green. It's a, it's a lot. She's, she's coming from her past as a villain, so it's like a, a, a chromatic nod to villainy there. Yeah, she's got a thing and it works and she sticks with it. I just feel like you have green pants and green tunic, like she couldn't get like white gloves. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. There was the green and white for, for a while. Do you know how quickly white gloves get dirty? <laughs> yeah, it's a comic book. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
Um, one of the ones I really enjoyed was actually uh, Psylocke's first superhero costume when she joined up with the X-Men, the sort of pink princessy billowy one. Oh, yeah, yeah, the battle princess one. Um, well, because, like, so, so and we talked about this on the show, and I think, Jay, you actually said more about it than me, but I, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about it, and I just agree more and more. Having a character with that much, like, that much darkness and that much steel inside her, and having her have just those, uh, those trappings of femininity and, in some ways, in innocence, makes for some awesome complexity, and also, I think, gets a little more, uh, a little more analytical about, like, what gender is and what gender can be. And I'm not sure if that was, you know, all intended when some, when this costume was made back in the day, but for me, I love it when a character's visuals accentuate who they are, and not just who they are, like, I am the strong one, or I am the one with knives in his hands that really has terrible judgment or whatever so like, when it can get to some of the more the more subtle stuff there that isn't textual when you can have subtext within character design that is I think one of the greatest things about about superhero comics my, uh, of that new X-Men room one of the things I really love is at the end Sylvester does that like uh, was, is it Days of Future okay, no, here comes tomorrow. Tomorrow. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and the Wolverine design is like he's wearing the 90s X-Men top but with the Morrison jacket like the quietly jacket and like jeans and a cowboy hat. I think that's so awesome. Like that's what I was saying. Like you just mixed everything together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so cool. I'm I'm thinking about you know what what you're talking about with that and God all the er- eras of all the characters and I have I have like artists who I think of as defining what the X Men look like. When I picture X Men in my head, they're usually drawn by Paul Smith. It's mm, a good choice. But. Hmm, in terms of characters and looks. I mean, it's hard to go wrong with Warlock. I love how yeah. different oh, artists yeah. do Warlock. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I actually did Warlock. a commission uh, of the New Mutants, and nice. when I was looking for a reference for Warlock, I was like, this is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's great because he's so protean. He's, yeah, he's yeah. one of those characters. He's, I've, I've considered starting a Warlock sketchbook just because it's one of those things that even in, you know, canonically, when he was basically in one series, artists took in such wildly different directions over time. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Chris always says that he loves seeing it be, be Warlock in action because it completely reveals the personality of the artist. <laughs> that totally. More than anything. Yeah. And I can also tell you, he is great if you're in a composition problem. Yeah. You can shape oh. him into any shape you want. <laughs> <laughs> or need to guide the eye or I, I, I'm still trying to think of my answer to this. <laughs> I, I love, I mean, I, I love from a design standpoint, I, I always come back to Cyclops' costume from X Factor Forever. Mm. Because it's a very, it's, it's, it's got the quietly street clothes as superhero costume thing, mm. but it's tweaked very subtly from the default designs in ways that make it incredibly distinctive. And actually, someone made me that, I've talked about this before, and someone made me that jacket and brought it to the show. So it's at the table now, so if you want to see it, like I can actually show you the actual jacket, but it's fantastic. And it's, it looks, and, and I know part of the fun of superhero costumes and comics is they don't have to be wearable and they don't have to be feasible. But occasionally something, you know, the, the Captain Marvel current costume is a great example of something that really beautifully bridges visually striking on the page and completely makeable and wearable. And this is, this is another design that definitely comes across that way. And, and some of that is, is that it's Dan, Dan Penosin's artwork, but um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll go with that conditionally for now, I think. Sweet. Probably. <laughs> Pend, pending change. Uh, maybe there'll be an as mentioned for this episode and Jay will be like, okay, actually I changed my mind. Here are a bunch of panels of, of I love this. them all. <laughs> <laughs> They're all our wonderful dysfunctional children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I guess we should probably get to questions soon, but um, do any of you have anything else you'd like to add before we, uh, before we bring people up to the microphone? Can't think of anything. All right, so as you know, we do Q&A. And I will qualify, we know a lot about the X-Men, but part of how we are able to answer all of your questions on the show is that we are also research monsters. So if you have, have, ask a question and we don't know the answer off the tops of our heads, check back on the website in a couple days, we'll get back to you with a proper answer within that time. Now there's a microphone right there. If you've got a question, come and line up at the mic. If that is not feasible for you, if you can't get to it for any reason, um, raise your hand and we'll make sure the mic gets to you or just yell. That's true. So, uh, so yes, don't be shy. If you have questions for yes. panelists or for us, about yeah. X-Men in general, about whatever. Hi. Hello. Hi. Uh, do we know the actual successful, like, I have survived the X Academy race for students? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, kids that go there and either leave successfully or just don't die. <laughs> so do we have a survival rate for, for X uh, former and current students? Here's a question. Does it count if they both die and are resurrected during their time <laughs> as, as a student? I still have death, so we okay. Can't okay. Not off the top of my head. I, if, if there's a statistician out there who wants to crunch those numbers. I will say it got a well, lot worse when Yost and Kyle were doing new X-Men. Yeah. Poor tag. Poor tag. Yeah. And also that entire other busload full of children. I have a question for our uh, artists here. Um, so with the X-Men, there's often got concurrently about like 20 different teams going in at a given time. Uh, do you find that there's a lot of pressure from the editorial to try and keep their book very similar, or do you get some more creative leeway where you get to make characters kind of look their own to your art style? Um, oh, you know, I was about to say, you know much more about that. It, there were only two books, I think, when I was working on it. So it was a lot different back then. Um, and I've been very fortunate that all the stuff I did at Marvel, they kind of, like, it's in its own, like, corner of the thing. So, I mean, especially East for Extinction, uh, they just said you could do whatever you want because this is an alternate Earth anyways. <laughs> but I, uh, I did try pretty hard so that to, like, I feel like you kind of internally know uh, like this just wouldn't make any sense, like that, because that character does exist already. Like they would, they wouldn't look radically different than they already do. But uh, yeah, I think uh, a lot of times editors will give artists uh, like creative, uh, like room, like wiggle room. So like my thing is, I like to just work on proportions and like you know seams and stuff. That that makes a big difference in like how like I would define a costume, but. The editors don't notice that as long as like the general shapes are there. Yeah, you draw a lot of seams. I draw the appropriate amount. <laughs> <laughs> Rochelle, what about you? I was actually going to say I get no creative leeway as far oh, wow. as coloring. If there's, I mean, most of the time I have reference that either the artist has come up with for the colors or the editorial team has already set these colors for, like, let's say a new design for Rogue. So it's already kind of set in stone for me, so. Do you get much space to, to play around stylistically outside of that? Uh, I, I like want to say for the most part, um, sometimes uh, they'll see a style I do on a, another book, and they'll be like, we want you to do this on this book. 
So it just really depends on the editor. Yeah, colors really are like unsung heroes a lot of time. I'm friends with a lot of colorists, like really good friends, so I hear their frustrations. With, <laughs> even if you wanted to go stylistically out of the box, like your job is yeah. like post-production work, they feel like. So as much as like their art can make or break the look of a book, like uh, readers don't always understand that. The editors, I don't think, understand that either. They just know of, like if in their head, it's, oh yeah, it's good or it's bad. But like, yeah, I have friends that will try to do something creative and they're like, ah, you know, we really like, would rather you just like do the airbrushy stuff you were doing earlier. Right, So, yep. uh, yeah, I mean like, it's, it is tough, right? Like, uh, colorists deserve more respect, I think, mm -hmm. in comics in general. Yeah, if you agree. If you, <laughs> if you have a takeaway from this panel, The balance between sort of practical real world wearability versus sort of design and, and costumes and objects fitting in thematically. I'm just curious when you approach, especially superhero costumes, like does does real world physics and wearability come into it more than the thematic aspect of things, or do you sort of go, well, this is a world with fantasy in it, so I'm just gonna run with this thematically, whether it would be buildable or not? I think that's really changed in recent years because of all the cosplay, the films, where they're building these costumes. Back when I was doing it, cartooning was still a big part of it, so you were intentionally doing things that no one could ever wear, in a way. Not always. I remember I did a set of designs for the New Mutants, and uh, I actually spent a lot more time on the girls because they seemed more interested in, at that time, the way the culture was. And also, I didn't want to do anything that was to add to my drawing time more than I was already doing, because Danny had fringe, and I put a you know, big shoulder pad jacket on Liliana. I gave someone scales once, and I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you find out pretty early on that, you know, when it's 22 pages a month, and everybody else has to have time to do their work, so you really have to move through it, so that becomes a factor, especially when there's so many characters in the team book, plus the villains, plus whoever else is around. And, uh, so that used to factor into it was, um, it's got to look cool, but I can't, it can't take me two hours to do this every time I draw it. But now it's different. You have a better answer for that. Yeah, in uh, like monthly sequential stuff, I like to try to find a balance. And I feel like the, the balance of like the way I draw versus uh, what I can do monthly in any kind of capacity is like, the simpler the, the general design is, the easier I'll make it on myself. So like if I do a commission, they'll have like patches and like all kinds of like extra layers of clothing and stuff. But if I'm just doing like a monthly book, I'm like, no, I better like keep this simple. But um, I think like my general like philosophy about it is like the like being able to like wear those clothes kind of is a fantasy. Like so like I tend like you know they mentioned like I tend to draw seams and folds and stuff like that a lot like probably more than like other superhero artists and uh, that's just because I, I think that like, you know, as much as it is cool to have like see a six pack, like knowing that they're wearing the clothes over the six pack is like equally as like, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I like to like, to kind of answer your question, like when it's monthly stuff, it's a balance. When it's like a commission or a one-off illustration, 
I'll go way outside, like something that's impractical. Um, and yeah, I think just like the real world is, is cool. Like being able to see that person walking around with those clothes that like, I, I watch a lot of like, uh, like, like fashion stuff. So, um, like that is like kind of fantasy and, but you know, the cartooning stuff is equally important because you have to draw comics. <laughs> All right, so we're starting to run short on time, but if we can be quick, we can hopefully get everybody. Yes. Um, I was wondering, um, I picked up the 2009 when we use a few weeks ago, and the first thing I noticed was um, how pale Sunspot was in comparison to um, how I usually see them drawn, and um, I was wondering uh, what other characters like are that most often happens to, and if it's getting better than it was before. That's a really good question. Yeah. Um, Rochelle, I feel like you might have most, well, the most perspective on this. I was going to ask, what do you mean by pale? I mean, I... Um, like, um, you know, like, in the first game, it's like, he's, um, you know, he's... He's darker. Yeah. And he's like in this one. He's like almost as pale as um like Sam. Yeah. yeah, and that's definitely happened with Sunspot, like across a number of, of books, like over the years, which is weird. I mean, bad coloring. I, I mean, I, I I can't. I have. I'm not sure the reference you're uh, talking about, but I mean, a colorist job. It that's what. I'm, the, with what I was talking about earlier as far as what we see on screen and then what goes to print can be two totally different things if the colorist is not aware of you know what they're doing um, so it could have been something that just was lost in translation from screen to print um, or it could have just been really bad coloring yeah, I do know that, that um, I, I, we've seen that get a little better in places, like in the New Avengers, U.S. Avengers run, it started to go kind of in that direction, and then, in my opinion, got, got better as it went, so, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've noticed that tendency as well with, with exactly that character. Yeah, I think it's something, too, where the more it happens, the more likely it is to happen, because when you're looking for reference, mm -hmm. mm. yep. if what you're going to is the original coloring and the, the original New Mutants, you're going to get something very different than if you're going to, you know even like early X-Force, which, and, and so the more there is out there, the more options there are for someone to end up on. It's like skin the tone, fact, telephone, yeah. That's, that's a place where I think the internet is great because so much more of that information, so much more of those visual histories, and so much more of the conversation about things like how Reese is represented and isn't represented in comics are becoming just publicly accessible parts of the lexicon. It's not just one person in which issues the, the editor thinks to send them as reference for the upcoming run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. I, I am IGM, but next to RPG. Nice. And, uh, Brave person. <laughs> and, um, I wrote myself so I'm on the way. Uh, but anyway, so all the players are new students at the school. They sort of all met by the next men coming to them and saying, you're a mutant, blah, blah, blah. What do the students do during the day at school? <laughs> <laughs> there's no crisis, I know of like the one student that's on the front. What do they do? What do I have to do during the day? <laughs> there are nominally classes. 
<laughs> exactly. So it's like I, I just had magic come back. So everybody was busy and they had a day off. That's all I've got so far. Yes. If if you look at the beginning of the the post schism stuff, oh, the Wolverine and the X Men stuff. Yeah. Wolverine and the X Men actually has stuff like syllabi for the Jean Grey Academy and the Jean Grey School. That is a really good point of reference for that. And it's all like this wonderful hybrid between you know classes you could conceivably be in and like horrifying superhero nonsense. Yeah. It's like so we we just went from algebra and now we are definitely going to talk about um, you know evil cyborg visions of the future and possibly travel to several. They did bring Deathlock back as a teacher yeah. for roughly that topic. There was also, and I don't know if someone has collected or storified these, but there was a brief period when Marvel PR was was doing immersive fiction on Twitter with the character, but we were like half the characters in the series had their own Twitter accounts. So yeah, I would I would look for that stuff, but definitely the first Wolverine in the X Men run. Thanks. Sweet. But it wasn't the Xavier School. They were they were they were um, they they commuted. Yeah. Yeah, I would assume. Oh, also look at like athletic immersion programs or specialized high schools that do. Here's where you do your normal classes, and then you have this other big thing. So I'd I'd probably look to those. What you got? Okay, uh, I read a lot of. Uh, Weapon X stuff and a lot of the my first crushes babies. Uh, Thumbtacks go like murder of the tram pages. Are back on the canvas. How many children dying war are dying for adoption clone slash clone purposes? Does Wolverine actually have? Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, that we know about. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to do? Do we want to try to do the whole list right now? Uh, we can. Menu. Menu, okay, well that, that does narrow okay, it down. Okay, including adoption, which is which widens it significantly. Okay, so we got uh, Amico, uh, that girl that he adopted and then pawned off on Mariko. Yes. Uh, there, there's Dokken, uh, there's that kid from Wolverine the Jungle Adventure that nobody ever remembers exists. Uh, there's... Including uh, Wolverine most of the time. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, you know, there's Laura if you... Well, Laura is his favorite, so... Yeah. Well, and Laura, Laura is his clone, though, so whether it's a parental or sibling relationship is always kind of he up in the air. Yeah. You, yeah, okay. Um, uh, those are the ones I can think of right now. You know we're going to be forgetting someone super obvious. Oh, I'm sure we are, yeah. Uh, yeah, if you could work Honey Badger in, it's like a once removed, totally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was alternate universes with, like, Rays and stuff like that. But yes, if we're sticking to 616, I think that's what we have yeah. right now. Well, Rays isn't from 616, but he's ended up in 616. I'm going to say he doesn't count, because otherwise everything crosses over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like everything burns, but... <laughs> cool. All right, and uh, we have one more. Hi. Uh, so everyone, but um, mostly the artist. Um, between style and color, who has the best hair? Setting aside Mohawk Storm. <laughs> 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 that would disqualify every other choice. Oh, yeah, she, she's an outlier, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I really like Quentin Quire. Yeah. yeah yes. Like, uh, I think he's cool. Um, and uh, Wolverine, obviously, is really cool hair. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's cool in like a very subtle way. Like, Quentin Quires is very extravagant. Rogues is iconic, because it's got that stripe. So those three? Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's varied so much, because I'm thinking, I love uh, Storm's Mohawk, but I also loved her, you know, whipping around in the storm, so. Storm just has the best hair. Yeah. Period. Yeah. yeah. I mean, usually all the women have cool looking hair. 
I mean, that's kind of the rule. You're trying to make everything glamorous and attractive, no matter what kind of impossible physical action they're doing. <laughs> yeah, I can't think of one I don't like, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was totally going to say Storm and her mohawk. That was definitely my favorite. Um, I, I would probably say Phoenix as it goes into the fire was really yeah. cool to color. Mm -hmm. So that would probably be my second. I have, mine, mine are always closely associated with artists because I feel like there are, there are specific artists. You're totally gonna steal my answer, aren't you? <laughs> I, I don't know because I have, I have three answers. And, and my answers are, are, are the artists who I, who, who I think draw the, the coolest hair are, are Walter Simons and Larry Stroman and Alan Davis. Yeah. Um, but for Stroman specifically, Wolfsbane. Stole my Just answer. because that is, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, it's a good answer. I'm sorry. It is a good answer, thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, because I, I, think, I think she's got a hairstyle that people tend to minimize and draw minimally, and he played with it and took it in such interesting and such distinctive directions. I love that. Oh, real quick, Mero had red hair. Mero, yeah, Mero had awesome hair. Yeah. yeah. Um, although she's been interpreted a number of ways as well, yeah, but usually with awesome hair. Most recently in she Canada was in the Berkeley. video games though, right? Like the fighting ones? Was she? Yeah, yeah, she was in one, yeah, at least one of the fighting ones. About whose beard? Warlock's dad. I can Magus. Oh, the, the Magus's beard. Yes, it's a techno-organic okay. beard. I think Colossus wears wears it better. Oh, <laughs> I got to give some love to most of the Age of Apocalypse, but specifically Cyclops's oh, yeah. entirely yeah. overwrought, entirely impractical, <laughs> like swept over long hair. Like, dude, you turn your head, and you're going to be blasting your own hair off. It's not going to work. Also, can we have a collective moment of silence for for Shatterstar's amazing mullet? Goodbye, Molly. That's okay, he grew a mustache recently, and I think that like evens it right back out. <laughs> um, well, I think we're, um, yeah, we're just about out of time. Uh, that, that went really fast. Um, yeah. But thank you all so much for not only listening to the show, but coming to see us at a show, and in some cases, taking on faith that this show with a strange name with a stupid vi visual pun in it would actually be any good. Thank you all for being here. It's so wonderful to actually see you all in person. Yeah, thanks to Emerald, Emerald City Comic Con and its staff, and especially and always Mike Miller um, for making this. This is one of our favorite shows. It's one we love and look forward to coming back to. And in particular here, thank you so much to our, our panelists. Yes, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Both, both for talking with us here today and for providing us with material to talk about the rest of the time. Um, and you are all tabling at the show, so where, where can folks come find you and, and throw money at you or ask you questions? Or? Uh, X somewhere, I don't remember. The name. <laughs> you are X9. I remember that because I... I... But uh, my rep switches us, so it's oh. X something. Ooh. I don't know what X... As long as it's not X3, that one was terrible. Uh. <laughs> I mean, whoever's tabling there right now is probably great. I just hate the movie. Good music, man. <laughs> Uh, this one's easy for, for me to remember this year. It's BB1. It's my initials. One. <laughs> I'm at DD2. And we are at T11. Uh, yes, and if you happen to be in town and free tonight and want to come to Phoenix Comics at 7 p.m., yes. we're doing a listener meetup and sort of early podcast birthday party. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to have? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm just fixated on the cookie cake, so I'm really excited. Um, but we are, if, if you've come to, to those before, you know they're free, they're all ages, you don't need a con badge to get in, it's kind of the anti-bar con. Um, we bring the big days of future past well and actually hang it up at the appropriate angle with all the controlled zone signs and bring the word balloons on sticks and the mutant revolution protest signs so you can take cool pictures. 
Um, Phoenix is also just a really great spot for seeing a lot of cool local stuff. Um, I, it's a really good comic shop. Also, cookies. You can tell this is a lunchtime panel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've got, if, if you don't know where Phoenix is or if you, if you need help remembering that stuff, we've got a stack of flyers, including the address, um, over at our table. Yes, come to our table regardless. Say hi. It'll be great. Take flyers. And Buy things if you if want. this is your first encounter with us, uh, you can find us online at explainthexmen.com. We're also on Twitter and Tumblr at explainthexmen. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. We're on Google Play. Um, do we use any other platforms? I think that's pretty much and it. Probably. We're on Patreon. Oh, yes, Patreon. Um, so we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. We have been doing this. This has been our jobs or a significant portion of our jobs for almost four years, and we've been able to keep it entirely ad-free. And that is entirely thanks to our patrons. And those are the folks who make this possible. Those are the folks who make conventions possible. I know some of you are out there. I know some of you are going to be listening to this later. Round of applause. Thank you so much for keeping us on the air and keeping <laughs> To, to Matt, Matt, our producer, yes. who is wonderful, who deals with our nonsense. All right, so we won't do a full outro here because I think we're very much running out of time. Yeah. But um, we'll just go ahead and say, uh, what's the next one that comes out after this? Uh, I believe that's going to be about the less bizarre than you would think from the title Bizarre Adventures number 27, a really uh, kind of obscure, given how important its yes. story is, issue. So that'll be a really fun one. Yeah, that's going up Sunday. Uh, I'm excited about except it. if you're listening to this when this episode comes out, it'll probably be a different one. Probably Alice Force. It's been up for a week. Yes. So I, I don't remember what we're doing for 189. My, my brain is entirely convention logistics now. Legit. Anyway, thank you all again so much. Thank you for being here. It's wonderful to see you all. Come see us at our table. We love you all. Thank you.